0: by you to have a seat. My name is Josh McClain. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it is a privilege to be gathering with you uh, folks this morning. It really is a joy to see each and every one of your faces. Um, and I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever found yourself sitting at your friend's home? Maybe it's somebody that you just met. You're sitting at their home. You've, maybe at the dinner table, you've just enjoyed a meal. It was exquisite. And now there's become, there's this talk now of playing a board game. Some of you guys, are, you have different opinions as to what what, what, what that's going to look like, how you'll feel about that. Some of you are thinking from that experience, hey, I don't want to do that. It doesn't matter what the game is. I know I've been there. I've done that. I don't want to play a board game. Some of you are like, yes, I want the board game. I want to win the board game. This is just another way that I can uh, exert my dominance upon creation. And so it, just a little bit at a time, well, let's begin. Tell me the rules. Either way, whatever your disposition is, telling you that some of you guys have have quickly realized the error of your ways. As you've sat there for 30 minutes, hearing just the guidelines and the rules, and you're thinking, this was a mistake. This is gonna take far longer than I could have ever dreamed. You're thinking, I have to work in the morning. You're thinking, my pillow is calling me. For those of you that love to dominate in games, you're beginning to think, wait a minute, what if I lose this game? Then I'm at their house Then I have to do the walk of shame Even if I live on the same street You still have to go home and For some of you it may even be upwards of 30-40 minutes To get to your house and you're thinking This was a mistake And mainly it's, it's come to this rules, This set of rules Some people when they look at the laws of God They, they come to the same conclusion They consider the law of God And they, they look at it and they say What have I gotten myself into What is it that God requires of me We'll talk about that this morning. I'm going to do a little bit of pop quiz. If I had some, if it wasn't COVID. I would throw candy bars at you right now if you got the answer right. But how, how many commands? I want you guys to participate with me. How many commands are found in Exodus chapter twenty? DJ. Ten. Oh, here's the invisible candy bar for you. I owe you one. Okay. Uh, very good. Ten. How about how many commands are in the Old Testament? Six hundred thirteen. Wrong. District Here's another invisible candy bar for you, so you guys have both dominated. When you think about this 10, you think, man, some of us are like, 10 commands, that sounds like a lot. And uh, we think about that, maybe you're thinking, maybe I can, maybe when you hear the 10, you're like, you know what, that's a lot, it's pretty in-depth, but I think I can handle those 10 commands. I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to dominate those 10 commands. I'm going to dominate the law of God. I'm going to fulfill it in my life. And then you hear, the other of you, when you hear uh, 10, you're feeling more like when you hear to 613. You're like, whether it's 10 or 613, this is far too much. I could never do it. I just really hope that these laws don't apply to me. I also hope that I don't have to obey them. And if I don't obey them, that I don't get caught. Either way, when you think about all the laws that God has given to his people, you might come to the conclusion that it's oppressive that it's daunting, that it's overwhelming, that it's condemning, that it's challenging, and maybe you like a challenge. This morning I want to talk to you about this idea of how we uh, are to think about the law of God. How are we to think about the law of God? Ultimately, there, there are really two common but unbiblical responses to the law of God in the church. I want to get those out of the way first. I want to talk about what, how we should not respond to the law of God. The first way that we should not respond is legalism. Legalism. Definition should be on the screen for you, but I'm I'm going to share it with you now. Legalism is to embrace the law in a way that demonstrates the belief that God's approval can be obtained through it. So it's to embrace the law in a way that demonstrates. The belief in your heart that God's approval can be obtained through it. It's thinking that you can somehow earn God's favor by obeying his commands. Like he'll begin to love you more or maybe less based on your performance and how well you meet these commands. That's legalism. We're going we're to debunk that this morning. i are actually just going to let the Apostle Paul debunk that this morning. But the other way that we can fall off and and think about the law in an unhelpful, unbiblical, ungodly way is licentiousness. That's probably a word that you were thinking of this morning. That's probably a very common word for you, licentiousness. The root of it is, think of license, the the freedom to do something, right, or to not do something. You have that license. Think of license to kill. Whatever you want, it doesn't matter. And and licentiousness says this, that the law doesn't apply to you. Here's the definition I want you to write down if you're taking notes. Licentiousness. To dismiss the law as if God's law somehow doesn't apply to you. To dismiss the law as if God's law doesn't apply to you. So both of these approaches fundamentally, they misunderstand how the law and the gospel interact, how they they relate to one another. And by the way, some of you that have grown up in church, you have seen, uh, maybe even from the pulpit, but you've seen like this culture in your church that looks to these churches and says, these churches are legalistic, these churches are licentious. And you think about that. You, you know who those churches are. Maybe that's you. If, if that's you, I want to I encourage you. This is very important. Today, this morning, is not about considering what other churches in Washington County and, and, and Maryland or in the world are licentious and legalistic. What I want you to do this morning, the the pressure is on you to look at your own life and consider your own heart first. And here's why. Because the legalist hardly ever thinks of himself as a legalist. And the one who embraces license hardly ever thinks of themselves in that way. I I can put it to you this way. This is a very high-level, top-shelf illustration. Do you think Jafar thought he was a bad guy? No. The bad guy never thinks he's the bad guy. Life is not as simple as Disney wants us to believe. It's far more complex. There is not clearly a good guy and a bad guy, not relative to mankind. Now, relative to God, of course there is. I want to encourage you to consider your own heart this morning and ask the Lord to reveal to you. Is there some area in your life where you consider the law of God in an unbiblical way, either with legalism? Yes! I can demonstrate my dominance, my personal value and worth to God and His people and the the entire world by owning these commands. That's legalism. Licentiousness would be, doesn't apply to me. Doesn't apply to me at all. I can do whatever I wish. So i want to look at a few passages this morning. Uh, most of them, we've really been hovering over these and, and interacting with the last few weeks anyway in this gospel-centered life uh, series that we're working through. But the first passage I want us to look at this morning together is Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. And so those should be on the screen for you this morning. I want to give you like a little bit of a heads up as we jump into this passage. In Galatians chapter 3, or actually Galatians, Paul is confronting a church. That has come under the influence of a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of people who were Jews that had converted to Christianity. but now they were trying to say that you don't just need the cross of Christ. You don't just need the work of Jesus in your life for salvation. You actually need to add to it. What they were doing was shrinking the cross. Do you remember the the cross uh, illustration? And your timeline of life That's coming across this way When you become a Christian You become aware of your own sinfulness And God's holiness At that point the holiness of God begins to increase You begin to see it more and more clearly God doesn't become more holy You begin to see him as more and more holy As that happens You begin to see yourself as more and more sinful And the cross of Christ Leaves us with hope, It demonstrates to us that it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. We'll never be able to span that gap. The cross of Christ must span that gap. Amen. What the Judaizers were doing were saying, yes, the cross of Christ needs a stepping stool. It needs a platform. It needs some kind of a foundation for you to begin to work, to earn God's favor. Then, plus the cross of Christ, you will be saved. This is what Paul is trying to to debunk. And so look with me. He doesn't try to, by the way. He effectively does it. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is what it says. He says, Oh foolish, Gal- foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's reminding them of God's monergistic role in their conversion. I just used a 50-cent a, a word or maybe a $50 term because of inflation. <laughs> the, the Century Dictionary defines monergism as this. It should be on the screen. It's in theology the doctrine that the Holy Spirit is the only efficient agent in regeneration. That the human will possess no inclination to holiness until regenerated and therefore cannot cooperate in regeneration. I want to help you think you say I don't know that I'll ever remember that. I don't know that I'll ever remember that word. I'm going to help you. I want I want you to remember that word. Think of monergism this way. Break it down. Mono, what's it mean? It means one. Okay? What's the next part of that? The the, the suffix here is It's erg, or ergon. What does that mean? It means to work. It comes from this idea of energy, right? It's it's, it's related energy. And so it's it's to work. It's it's a a unit of force, and an ism, right? It's a system of thought. And so monergism is this idea that there is one working. And it's in connection with salvation. What have you done, Paul is saying? What have you contributed to your salvation? And he's very bold, a bit crass. He says, oh, foolish uh, Galatians, who has tricked you? Who has bewitched you? He says, you've begun this, this, this life, well, how? By, by God working in you. And now you think that you're going to finish it on your own? You think that somehow you'll add to that? You think of monarchism. you can think of it this way. That God has begun the work of salvation in their lives, and He would also complete it. That's what the Spirit has begun; that's the Spirit will complete. Maybe you could use this picture in your mind. Imagine two people beside a river. One is dead; the other is alive. What you've just missed, as we've jumped into this illustration, is that the one of the men that's on his knees with his hands on the chest of the other. He has dragged him out of the river because he was dead, he had drowned. So he's dragged him out of the river and now he's begun chest compressions. He is the only one there doing the work. Both would like this person to live and yet one of them is dead and unable to contribute in any way, shape or form. And so as this man does the chest compressions, as he's dragged this this fellow out of the water he is doing monergism. It's one person working. So Paul is reminding him of that. He's saying, "Hey, what have you done? How did you contribute? Why will you try to finish the work that God has begun? You can't do it. So God had begun this work of salvation in our lives. He would also complete it. Nothing that you can contribute to your salvation, not to your justification." It's your glorification. so work that the Spirit of God will empower in your life. Perhaps you could ask yourself this diagnostic question. This will help to address this issue as to whether you're Jafar or not, whether you're the bad guy, whether you're the legalist, or whether you're the, the licentious person. Ask yourself this question. What is it, or is it, is there anything that you do in an effort to achieve favor from God? Is there anything that you do in an effort to achieve favor with God? A few weeks ago, I asked you another diagnostic question. I said, I want you to imagine the father. He's thinking about you right now. He's looking at you. And as you imagine him, what does his face reveal about you? Is he pleased? Is he angry? What's the answer to that question? We talked about this idea. It's either 100% pleased or zero percent pleased. one or the other. But let's just say that in your mind, be honest with yourself. We're not going to make you come stand on stage and tell us, but just be honest in your own mind. What did you think, or what do you think this morning would be on his face? And now answer this question: What will you do to change the look on his face? What will you do to change the look on his face? Let's. Maybe unhelpful for some of you, but I think it's a good tool. Think about it. What's your go-to action to try to shift things to make God like you more, to be more pleased with you? There's nothing that you can do. There's absolutely nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. If you're a Christian this morning, his love is for you. Christ, Christ's righteousness is on you. Your sinfulness was on Christ. We've covered this. There's nothing that you can have in Christ. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son. So Paul sets legalism up before them, and he reminds them that it's unbiblical. He reminds them that it's cross-shrinking, that it's God-belittling. He debunks it. But he also speaks to license as well. So he says legalism is wrong. You can't add to it, but in another passage, the Scriptures reveal to us that the weakness of license as well. I want you to look with me at Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. It should be on the screen again. I really, honestly, just want to look at verse 15, but for for, uh, sake of context, this morning, we're going to start in verse 5, and we'll read it all together. Romans chapter 6, and verse 5, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his... For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of foreign righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, or bought rather, from death life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law but under grace. Let me ask you this question. What does it mean to sin? How do we know if we have sinned? We break God's law. To sin, to miss the mark, is to break God's law. And those who are Christians have died with Christ and so in his death they were with him in his raising up they were with him. We, we have died and therefore the sin along with its legal accusations against us was eliminated but also we are alive in Jesus and able to obey the commands of God now as we are in Christ and so that's all the foundation for this rhetorical question that Paul asks us in verse 15 he says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And the answer is an obvious no. We're not. God forbid. So there's this seemingly paradoxical struggle between these two. The law and the gospel. I want to Speak to this idea of how we're to think about The law and the gospel in a biblical way What is their relationship So I want you to write this statement down If you're taking notes, get ready, here it is The law Drives us to the gospel And the gospel frees us To obey the law The law drives us to the gospel And the gospel frees us To obey The law This is a huge Key in the life of a Christian, this is this is so paramount as you pursue the gospel-centered life. And so, Christian, listen up, husbands and wives, listen, parents—you're you're, going to need to know this. Church members, neighbors—you need to know that the law drives us to the gospel, and the gospel frees us to obey the law. I want to take the rest of our time this morning. And I want to introduce three subpoints under this main point to help unpack this statement about how the gospel and the law interact with one another. And so let me ask this as I introduce the statement. How does the law drive us to the gospel? As it says in the main point here. Well, number one, the gospel exposes our breaking of God's commands via the law. So the gospel exposes our breaking of God's commands. Via the law. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and also read 21. This is what the Word of God says. Now, the law came in to increase, for the purpose of increasing the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our, there's a principle here that you've got to get from this chapter. That the law came in for what purpose? It came to increase the trespass. You've heard it before. Now, in order to have good news, you have to first have what bad news, right? I mean, that's not necessarily true of everything, but if everything literally is good news, there's, you can't receive any good news unless you've got a little bit of bad news first, right? And so, the law is what causes the gap between you and God. To increase. This is the key point for anybody apart from Christ, apart from God, to actually come to Him. You've got to become aware of your own sinfulness. Many of you, Christians this morning, gathering, thinking of your own life, your own conversion, the time when you were regenerate, when the Spirit of God revealed to you the glory of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and thereby revealed your own sinfulness. See, how did that take place? Well, it was through the law. You recognize that you had sinned against God. There's not one person, not one person in, on the face of this earth that has not sinned and broken God's law. So that gap between the two has begun to be realized. That takes place by the law coming into our life. It exposes our sin. Now, our sin gives occasion for grace. Grace. We see Christ as more precious because of the law. The ever-widening gap is is spanned by the ever-powerful cross. That's the gospel-centered life. But it can't take place. The cross cross cannot become precious until first we see our own sin. And our sin can can only be revealed to us by the law of God. This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5. It's what starts reconciliation in our lives as far as we can see. Without the law... We would be unaware of our need for Jesus. And this is why David, along with the, uh, the choir of saints throughout the ages, sings in harmony, I love the law of God. It binds me to Him in a way that nothing else can. Listen, it breaks the legs and causes Christ to scoop them up to Himself. This is the law of God. And that speaks to the negative disposition that so many Christians have have against the law, that they have toward the law. But the law was our schoolmaster, Paul tells us. It brought us to the place where we can see our need and God's provision to it. David alludes to this in Psalm chapter 119, verses 67 and 68 and then also in 71 and 72. It won't be on the screen, but I encourage you to write those uh, references down. Psalm 119, 67 Just go ahead and read down to 72, but I'll just, for this morning's sake, I'll just read a few of these verses. Verses 66 and 67 say, David says, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verses 71 and 72, David says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. The law of your your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. David is saying, you know, it's wonderful that I was afflicted. It's wonderful that the law of God struck me and broke me down and, and revealed to me my own sinfulness. The idea is that in his sin, he was humbled. In a sense, he was judged by God. He had broken God's law. When he came across God's law, he saw God's holiness and his sinfulness. He saw the penalty that was before him. And now David says, I love the law. He says, it was good for me that I was afflicted. It was good for me that I was struck down. Why? Because now... He learned the statutes of God. So the law of God is what brought David to the realization that he was in sin. The Bible says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. If it weren't for the law, our sinful state would be unknown to us. And the idea is like being in a foreign country country with its own unique laws and rules, and while visiting this foreign land, unbeknownst to you, you begin to break the law. And unbeknownst to you, you're incurring penalties against yourself. And in this scenario, it's extremely, extremely unfortunate for you that you're unaware of the law because the more you break the law, the more penalty you will have to pay. And so the earlier you become aware, the better. The earlier you get caught, in a sense. The better. This is kind of what David is saying. I got caught. If my sin was revealed to me, and I'm so very glad that it did. And he says, And now I love the law of God. It might sound counterintuitive, counterproductive. Why would the law of God be something that's precious? But David's saying, Because the law is what showed me I was on the wrong path. The law was what showed me I had a taste for things that would destroy me and ultimately separate me from my creator. So, how are Christians to feel about the law? Disdain? Anger? Frustration? Indifference? No. Like David, my prayer is that we would see that it was the breaking of our legs so that our kind shepherd would lift us up to his chest and and carry us through the dead. We would look at the law of God and we would say, it is precious and it is sweet and I love the law. I want you to notice something before we move on. The law of God is not some arbitrary statement instituted by God. He hasn't randomly chosen laws and then subjected us to them. It's, It's very clear. There's a strong connection between the law of God and God. Actually, the law of God emanates from God's very being. It is, in a sense, the very imprint of God. you remember going to the fair or going to, I don't know, some gift shop in the mall and they had these little cubes and they had all these pins that were locked in place in a, in, a, in, a, in a grid pattern? You could take that and you could like put your fist in it and then like there would be this exact imprint of your fist on the other side. And You know, you do it to your face. Don't do that now because of COVID, but we don't know who else has put their face in there. you've seen those before it's the exact imprint right that's in a sense what what I'm getting at when I say the law of God is the very imprint of God it's not arbitrary it's that there's a direct concrete connection between God and his law and so why should we not lie because God is truth why should we not worship another God because there is no other God. he is the only God he's the only one worthy of worship why should we not take his name in vain because his name is above all other names. Do you, do you see the direct correlation between the two? The law of God emanates from the person of God. When we see this strong, direct connection between the two, it makes more sense to us that we say, why would David say that he loved the law of God? Because it smelled like God. Because the law looks like God. Because the law holds him like God does. And it's comforting. David goes on. Talk about the law of God in Psalm 19. Write, the, write that text down. You, you want to look at that again this week. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. I'm going to read it for you. This is what the psalmist says: The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. This is a vivid, beautiful, tangible language. And I want you to notice as we just read all this, this song, this beautiful poem about the law of God, I want you to notice that every one of those words can be used to describe God. Look back at it. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, to be desired, and sweeter. Mm. What else can we say? All of those things describe. What else? You, your grandma's cooking. Yeah. yeah. The shirt that you're wearing. Your teenager socks. No. <laughs> None of these things describe anything else in life except for God and His law. Only God's law can revive the soul. Only God's law can make wise the simple. Only God can rejoice the heart. Only God can enlighten the eyes. Only God endures forever. You see the idea here? When David is talking about the law of God, he's talking about God. And so when we think about the law of God, we have to think this emanates from the very being of God. One study published in the Journal of Applied Social Psychology said that 80% of women and 50% of men deliberately smell the the clothing of their romantic partners while they are away, and they report feeling comforted by the sensation. That's a little bit weird, right? (laughs) Many of you are like, eh, that's weird, but I do it all the time, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's like you know the scent of your mom's perfume, and maybe she's not with us anymore. Maybe she's gone, and yet you're still comforted when you smell that smell. Maybe your husband's out of town and you're able to smell a t-shirt that t-shirt that he's had for 20 years and you pull it out and you smell it and it smells like him and, and, you, and you sense comfort and our children even our babies they can smell mother's milk and what happens to their cortisol levels it goes down their comfort, comfort levels increase why because they can sense the very presence of the one who brings them comfort. David, when, he's, when he sees the law of God, he smells and he thinks of God. And when he hears the law of God, he can hear God's very voice in his comfort. And so we as Christians, how are we to think about the law of God? Well, we're to think about the law of God as the good God. Why? Because it, it, it comes from his very being. It emanates from himself. It shows us our need for a Savior, because of that, I love the law of God, and I hope that, and I pray that you do too. The second thing I want you to see about the relationship between the gospel and the law is this, the gospel frees us from the curse of the law via the cross. This is point number two, sub-point number two, the, the gospel frees us from the curse of the law via the cross. I use the word freeze, but I could just as easily have used the word satisfied. The gospel satisfies the commands of God. How can the law of God and the gospel of God be held at the same time? By recognizing that the gospel reveals the law of God and that it's satisfied when speaking of the curse of sin that comes to us by way of God's law that has been broken. When we break God's law, we incur a punishment. That's very clear. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says this. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord so what has your sin earned you what has your breaking of God's law earned you penalty what's the penalty death Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 says the soul who sins what shall die Colossians also speaks to this we looked at this last week Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 14 and you who were dead in your trespasses And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, he paid for all of our sin. Those who are in Christ, the elect Christians, he paid for your sin. Every sin is paid for by Jesus in his death. For sinners, every lie, every theft, every instance of ingratitude, all of these, all of these, for those who are in Christ, it's faith. This is the righteousness of God. It's tied up with that, again, that double imputation. Christ's righteousness on us as a garment. Our filthy rags on him. And now as sons and daughters, we have Christ's righteousness on us. Why? Because of the cross. You say, but shouldn't we have to pay for our sin? For those who are in Christ, your sin is paid. Colossians tells us that it's been nailed, set aside, and nailed to the cross. Considering the late J.I. Packer, I want to give you a quote that he made, that that he gave us, where I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. He says, I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. What's propitiation? It is a sacrifice that averts wrath by paying for sin and canceling guilt. It's the appeasement or turning away of God's wrath against sinners by means of an atoning sacrifice. So that old hymn states this. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. So the law is not destroyed. No. The law is not destroyed, it is satisfied and by and this by the power of the cross. So how are we to think of the, 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 the law as Christians We are to consider the fact that the, There is a curse That comes with the law That when we break it Penalty is coming And yet that penalty for those in Christ It has been paid on the cross And so we do not mock the law We do not ignore the law We recognize that the breaking of the law curse, the curse that was paid by the cross of Jesus Christ And lastly the third point the gospel enables us to keep the law via the Spirit. The gospel enables us to keep the law via the Spirit. Just this week, as our life group discussed how we could in some ways and at various times act more or less like orphans or daughters and sons and daughters. So there are times in the life of a Christian where we're tempted to think of ourselves as orphans, as if we have to earn God's pleasure and joy in us and other times when we rest in the fact that we have been adopted many of us were thinking about all the, the reasons we felt guilty and even a bit dejected because we are acting like organs we're continuing to perpetuate this idea that we were just lost needed more and more help and changing and then the voice of reason stepped into the conversation the voice of the gospel and it came to us by one of our precious ladies in the group and she pointed out that while there are many reasons many areas that she could grow overall she was greatly encouraged by all the ways that she had begun even recently to act more and more like a daughter and not an orphan as you can see that there was a creature that was emerging a new creature a new creation that was emerging from the grave site of her former self something was changing something was happening Paul reminds us of this very same thing in first Corinthians chapter 6 Verses 9 to 11, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, And such were some of you. Mm. Such were some of you. And what does he say? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a powerful passage. Such were some of you, he says. You were washed, though. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to miss that last part of verse 11. We often overlook it. It's so important. It says, and by the Spirit of our God. How does it happen? By the Spirit of our God. So by, it speaks to the action, the acting party. Who is doing the work of sanctification in your life? Christian. The Spirit of God. Who is working in us, causing us in tangible ways to fulfill the law? The Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. One of my favorite family pictures of my children is a three-year-old Riley. Imagine that year old ride it's not too difficult for me to imagine I can see it just like it was yesterday here he's in my hands my hand my arm is stretched out he has a humongous smile that is bigger than his face his arms are extended out as well and he's acting as if he's flying and yet he's not really flying Right, Not in his own power, but empowered by his Father, he is soaring through the air. And it's impossible for a human to fly unless they are empowered by some outside force. This is a picture for you this morning of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a Christian. When it comes to the law of God, to fulfill the law of God is farther out of reach than you could ever imagine. It's like asking somebody to literally lift off the ground and take a few laps. Is it It's impossible. It can't be done, but through the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit working in your life, he comes to us, he lifts us up, and he soars us around and around. And all that is left for you to do is to stretch out your arms and smile. That's all we have to do. The Spirit of God does this work in us. And so are we to look at the law and hate the law because we can't do it? No, we say, Daddy, up here. I need another swim. I need you to do it again. Fly me around again and again. I want you to notice something as we come to a close. This is a beautiful thing. Have you seen the Trinitarian nature of what we talked about this morning? Have you seen it? The law of God reveals the character and nature of the Father and how that we have transgressed His law. So we learn a little bit about the Father through the law. That law reveals to us a need for a Savior. And the Son... In the gospel as our Savior he bears the cursed penalty on the cross thus satisfying the demands of the law so we see the law of God reveals to us the father reveals to us our need and then in the gospel the law is satisfied at the cross for us and then how are we to look at the law now as, as Christians with disdain when seen as we look at it, afraid that it will strike us, or do we boldness, stretch out our arms, and expect that the Holy Spirit will work in each and every one of us? There's no struggle between the law of God and the gospel, and we cannot ignore the law of God, nor pursue his favor through. Hagerstown Church, the law drives us to the gospel, and the gospel frees us to obey the law. Let's pray. Father, this is a glorious truth that you have revealed to us. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you have saved us. Basking in the glory of the Trinity this morning, as we consider the law of God and how it is perfect and beautiful, and it reveals to us the very character of you, Father. And at the same time we consider that we have fallen so short and Jesus at your cross we recognize that you have taken away the sting and curse of death it comes to us by way of the law and we're thankful and then, spirit as we consider the law impossible task that we are called to do, we look to you and we ask in hope, expecting, because of the promise, that you will empower us, that you will lift us up to fulfill the righteous demands of our holy and good God. We ask that you continue to help us to believe and to see these things, and we ask them in the name of Jesus